So you live a, a truly, you know, experiential food, experiential life for those eight hours that you, you know, choose to imbibe. It's been really a big enabler of health and well-being over the last two years. Welcome, everybody. My name is Haresh Singhani. This is Conversations with Haresh. We'll be talking to people of varied backgrounds, covering various topics. I'm very excited to be able to share these with you. The goal is to increase curiosity and empathy amongst all of us to help us grow professionally and personally at all levels. And of course, we also want to make sure that this is fun. So thank you again, and we'll look forward to having you. Today, we're speaking with Prasad Gopalkrishnan. Prasad's been a longtime friend coming up probably on about 10 years now. And he's also had very senior roles in uh, general management and other leadership capacities at companies such as Amazon, Starbucks, Procter & Gamble. He also worked as a chief marketing officer, CMO, for a company called Thrift Books in the Seattle area. Prasad is one of the more talented corporate leaders that I've had the privilege to come across. And he's also a serial entrepreneur, having built a couple of companies. He's on his second project now, which is in the nutritional supplements domain and he is going to be telling us a little bit about that beside corporate and kind of professional endeavors prasad is a family man having two children going through the school system now and also prasad's an avid tennis player so we'll get into some of these areas in our conversation and kind of how they intermingle in life you are technically on the air prasad welcome well thanks for having me i'm excited to uh, be on your project I am um, curious what your plan for the uh, podcast is. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks again. I can give you a very quick genesis or motivation behind this project. As you and I have been chatting, almost going on a decade, I think. <laughs> can you Amazing how been... time flies. I know, I know. I still remember when, I think it was Kedar, right? Your colleague at the time? <laughs> yeah, correct. Yes. Yeah, Kedar you... connected the two of us. Yeah, you guys were cooking up some new startup ideas and we met mm-hmm. over the years in those 10 years, I guess you've witnessed some of this already. You know, I've had an opportunity to play a role, sometimes more consequential, sometimes less consequential role in the success, or at least being a witness to success of many entrepreneurs and technology leaders. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes, uh, you know, people have given me a lot of nuggets of insights or wisdom. And sometimes maybe I've thrown in one or two things myself. And in multiple conversations, it came up that it might be worthwhile, or at least worth trying to share some of this content, whether it's around startups, leadership, how to make families happy, teams happy, customers mm-hmm. happy, etc. <laughs> there were several occasions and they keep repeating. And the idea was it might be helpful to distribute this content more widely. One classic technique, of course, is to write a book. You know, that's one kind of commitment. And then over time, a couple of people suggested maybe a podcast, which I suppose now everybody seems to have, or it feels like everybody has. And so that's kind of how this came about. And so the idea is to chase down people such as yourself and others that might be having experience and leadership experience in different realms and domains, as well as probably over time, we'll bring on some guests who are more junior, whether it's you know junior professionals or upcoming leaders or even students, and uh, yeah. just kind of talk about what's happening, what they've learned, what kind of things they've found helpful. Our goal is to try to do it in a 
edutainment fashion, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. So education yeah. and entertainment combined. And so yeah. I guess the, the, maybe it was longer answer than I, I was anticipating, but that's, that hopefully gives you an idea no, of I think, I think this makes, project. I think that makes sense. And two things. One, you know, the choice of the medium is, is very appropriate because as Gen Z is reading less and less books and consuming more and more media through devices, I think the podcast is where you're likely to maximize impact. And I'd say the second thing about why... I think you are a great candidate to create this content is you definitely are generous with your time and you listen regardless of who's across the table. You know, it's always been very easy to talk to you and uh, there is uh, an engaged, attentive audience. And over the decades that you've done this, I'm sure there is a lot of information that you, uh, useful information for uh, startups, for entrepreneurs, you know, folks trying to get off the ground that you will compile for them through this effort. So Happy to be a part of it. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the generous compliment. I hope, you know, this program and we'll be able to live up to those <laughs> expectations. We've all kind of been through the pandemic together, I suppose. You and I haven't had a chance to get together as much over the last two, three years. Yeah. Lots has happened. I hope family's doing well. I hope on the work front in general, everything's going well. I know you, you know, you had some very remarkable brand names in your past, but then yeah. in the last few years, you've been building a business from scratch. Yeah. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that and, you know, how it's going and maybe even in light of the pandemic or in general, how it's evolving. Yeah, no, absolutely. Work's going really well. You know, it's always challenging and especially given, you know, both the recent economic environment, the uncertainties, you know, the whole pandemic, you know, curveball over the last three years. Consumer habits have changed as a consumer brand. You know, you definitely have to accommodate consumer needs. A few things that I draw on from, I've had the just the luxury of learning from some of the biggest consumer brands out there. Once Old Spice, Gillette, Secret from Procter & Gamble, Amazon Retail itself with uh, specific categories, Starbucks and Evolution Fresh at Starbucks, uh, the cold-pressed juice company. I've had a chance to learn from all of these before I took a foray into you know creating our own little health and wellness company. It's been really good application of e-commerce practices, best practices, learning from the best of them, but also the consumer centricity of uh, what are the needs that we are innovating against. It's been great. We are definitely handling the pandemic, the post-pandemic scenario. Is there specific questions that you wanted to get into with regards to what's changed for the consumer? I mean, there's lots, I guess, that's on the horizon or there's lots that we can we can dissect. One of the things that, that the society in general, right, is kind of figuring out or going through is physical stores versus online. And I'm not sure for mm -hmm. your brand specifically, if you ever had a vision to you know, product or uh, merchandise it, right? In physical stores, and maybe you already are doing it. I'm not sure. So that would be one area I'm really curious about, which is where does the evolution go from here between online, offline, et cetera? And how is one to find success if you're, you know, building a kind of a new brand from scratch and maybe even for people who have existing brands or stores? Yeah, that's a very uh, multidimensional question. You know, I'll try to break it up into pieces. We as a brand, because I've had the luxury of working for brands that had a omni-channel presence, we made the choice to be strictly e-commerce, a pure e-commerce, pure play brand. And a lot of that stems from the fact that when you have to stock in brick and mortar, there is a significant relationship management, which is definitely something that you should take on when you have the scale and the resources. But as a small brand starting off, it's become really push play 
executions so long as you know what you're doing from an innovation standpoint, services standpoint, to be able to leverage uh, e-commerce platforms directly and make your brand available. So at this point, our brick and mortar exposure is very limited and is limited to some hyperlocal regional pharmacy. But I would say 99% is e-commerce centric. Obviously, Commerce has been moving steadily online over the past decade and a half, and more and more specifically to mobile. I think some of what we're dealing with, especially given the pandemic dynamic of you know three years uh, captive home office you know scenario, uh, work coexisting with family. You know some of the intuition around work from home has always been that it allows for more leisure. But what research is pointing out, too, is that there is same, if not more, accountability when you're working from home. But now, in addition, parents, you know, heads of household are more and more engaged in their children's activities, whether it's, you know, driving to classes, whether it's driving back and forth from school or just spending time with them. That ends up constraining their time even more so than pre-pandemic. You know, it used to be that when you work from home, you had a lot more time. But... Now, having lived this life for three years, consumers are even more demanding on being able to find what they want as quickly as possible and deliver it to me in the least possible way so that I can continue to do what I've been doing for the last three years, which is a heavy dose of both personal emphasis and work emphasis. This has been one of the key evolutions of B2C commerce. And I think the brands and the retailers that are likely to succeed in this dynamic are going to be ones that can emphasize clear product differentiation, product or service, clear path to purchase, and instant gratification by way of quick deliveries, that delivery time go from three to five days to you know two days to one day, and now it's two hours. Uh, it's gonna be a minute soon uh, or negative time. You know. I guess speaking of transitions, perhaps you can just briefly tell us what it is that you're selling or what are the products? The name of my company is Sare Wellness. We are chartered as a health and wellness company. This is my destination category. Uh, nutrition and wellness is, is what I have always worked on. At this point, we own two brands with plans to add a few more. These brands are specific to naturally derived supplements, naturally based supplements, or ingredients that are clinically proven and safe and effective for daily use. So one of our brands is Clinical Daily, and we recently added another, a pure sleep supplement brand that, you know, I went back and forth saying, hey, does this fit within the core brand portfolio? But we decided this this truly is a, uh, it needs its own positioning to be able to live and breathe. So we recently added another sleep supplement brand called Zetonin. And the promise in a very commoditized category, I think how we have been able to set up and differentiate over the last, the company is about eight years old now. And how we've been able to survive and sustain is through the promise of clinically proven ingredients, safe and effective for daily use, which is surprisingly not the norm in a category where supply chains are pretty well established. So we do take some pain to formulate carefully, pay attention to the customer in terms of what they're asking for. You know, these new movements to recent movements to emphasizing organic, vegan, free of anything that, you know, gluten, free of allergens, free of preservatives making sure that you are listening to customers and presenting innovation. The original question I was thinking about was that, you know, you made a transition. It's been, I guess, multiple years in the making, but then a few years back, you exited corporate life altogether. Correct. I, I forget the year yeah. when you actually made that full transition. Has it been five years? 17. 17. Yeah, so six years. Your routine has changed, I'm sure, significantly. But one of the things I know when we got together a few weeks ago, we were talking about was that on the personal front, besides you know growing the company, you're able to play tennis more. 
if I understood right. Mm -hmm. From, again, what I understand from previous conversations, you're probably as religious about tennis as you are about your business or probably any other part of your life. I'm not sure kind of where that's at. I know you devote a lot of time to it. Um, four or five times a week, you play almost religiously. I don't know exactly when that started in your life, but how has that played a part, you think, in your success in other parts of life, as well as in tennis itself, but maybe in family or in business and startup? Are there parallels or are there people that you met, things that you've learned, the discipline required or something? Are there lessons or insights or things that have yeah. transitioned from tennis to other parts of life? Yeah, no, for sure. The first time I picked up a tennis racket was 21 years of age in grad school. Pretty set in your patterns. You know, you've lost a lot of that, you know, childlike mobility. And so you got to start from scratch. A lot of it is just growing up in India. You didn't have access to the same infrastructure that was that is freely available here in the United States. And so take advantage of it, right? Back to your original question, I think I work harder for myself than I did in corporate, partly because, you know, there is, I look behind me and there is no one else to, to hand the bag to. So, you know, you are truly wearing multiple hats and a touch every aspect every day. The flexibility of schedule and the simplified decision-making in a small business is what has created the space for tennis multiple times a week. And in addition to tennis, I'll also say I'm the star volunteer at my kids' school. It's an area that previously was reserved exclusively for really engaged moms and they love to see a dad that is you know hitting with the best of them those have been two of the biggest positive lifts uh from this choice to work for myself talking about your question yes tennis has absolutely spilled over into every aspect of my work life of my family life number one i think everyone needs to have that one thing that is strictly personal that is extremely selfishly dedicated to yourself and this has to be outside of work and family responsibilities. I think what that does, so tennis is that thing for me. It is my health. It is my community. I got a really tight-knit set of friends that I learned from, that I do business with, that have come through tennis. That sharpening your sword, sharpening your knife, that competition edge to it. We recently, the team that I played on went to the nationals and ranked seventh in the 40 plus category and the 40 plus age group on the men's tennis. And, you know, this was amazing, right? To kind of start at the Sammamish Seattle level, bubble up to the PNW level, and then represent PNW as one of 13 zones on a national level. I had to be better every time I stepped on the court and I had to play in multiple different geographies, indoors, outdoors. So, you know, that inherent flexibility, adaptability is definitely something that you can get if you want. You could also choose to just be a recreational player and go easy on the competition, but there is that opportunity. It becomes really about choice. And uh, you'd be amazed, right? How much strategy and time investment completely recreational players like myself spend discussing new equipment, better strings, um, you know, how to look at what lineups, you know, your teams are going to present and try to put your best team forward. You know, truly it boils down to you can make it as big as you want, but then the spillover effects in terms of, you know, health, your well-being, it's a great outlet, you know, for mm -hmm. some of the frustrations that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And you leave all of that on the court, you come back home with incredible endorphins and come back to your work with the right attitude. So it, it's been a big influence on to every aspect of my life. Has it, or how has it, I assume it has affected kind of your food habits or your other consumption of whatever it is, right, that we do, whether it's alcohol, food, or still some of us smoking, etc. right? Yeah. Well, 
I'm not quite a nutritionist, but you know, I, I think I know enough. It definitely did affect over my last eight to 10 years in corporate. I was traveling a ton. It was really difficult for me to be diligent about regular exercise and regular diets and controlled diets because when you're eating out, you eat what you can in between meetings and so on and so forth. It was tougher to be purposeful. I'm not saying that there isn't people that do it successfully. It was a struggle for me. One of the things that I realized when I came back to working for myself and now I had this ability to play tennis five times a day in the middle of the day is that and I've always been healthy, but I would do better if I lost a few pounds and finally hit that goal that I wanted to get to. Number one, just so you're fitter. But then number two, you also got to think about the long term and easing stress on your knees and, you know, in general, you know, just being able to kind of be healthier. One of the choices that this drove for me on my diet is for the last two years, I've been doing the intermittent fast, which has been a remarkable enabler. It's not for everybody, but I would say, I'd say if your body allows it, if there isn't medical limitations to doing it, it has been a really big enabler because I'm the fittest I've been. I'm able to typically go 16 hours between dinner the previous night and, and my lunch the next day. And especially when you stack activity towards the end of that 16 hour window, you are really in ketosis at that point, burning through, you know, fat and in a healthier place. You know, what I like about the diet, obviously, is I would never be able to do some of these diets, exclusion diets, because sure. I am a foodie. I do like my alcohol. It's funny you talk about alcohol. I would say that aspect is, I don't know if you want to call it a pro or a con, but with tennis and the community, there is a fair bit of go out and get a drink or a couple with friends afterwards. The same. So, yeah, no, it's um, it's not an exclusion diet. You know, it's all inclusive. You don't need to give anything up unless you don't like it. So you live a truly, you know, experiential, food experiential life for those eight hours that you, you know, choose to imbibe. It's been really a big enabler of health and well-being over the last two years. In some ways, it almost sounds like for many of us that would have thought that you had the choice to whether to go to college or to go to graduate school, you think there are certain benefits you're going to get, but then when you're done, you realize there are actually 10 times more benefits when you make a commitment to tennis lifestyle or in my case, I'm not as hardcore as what you're describing your journey has been like with tennis. But for yeah. me, probably the closest thing is skiing. Usually I get, you know, double digit number of days per year in skiing. It does uh, affect or positively influence a whole bunch of things that I do throughout the year. So first, I can't get too heavy, just like you were yes. mentioning with tennis and probably with a whole bunch of activities, especially as you kind of put on the years of life, the joints are, you know, less flexible. Aging sucks in that sense, you know, this, yeah. is, this is true. There is definitely um, a lot more injury talk. <laughs> there is a lot more, you know, time offs and so on and so forth. Exactly. Kind of see, and this is to me, that would be the scenario that's got to be avoided at all costs. Keep yourself fit for the skiing. Exactly, exactly. And so it has had so many spillover benefits for me. And when I started skiing, I was also in my 20s. I mean, I had skied like maybe once before I was 25. And it's something that just enjoyed right away, even the first time I tried it. And so now throughout the entire year, whatever physical activity or inactivity I'm doing, how is this going to enhance or detract from my skiing experience, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, and that's not a bad thing, but now I have to think a little bit more about 
Another piece that you said is that you should have something that's that's just your activity, right? It doesn't have to be practical. It's outside of family. It's outside of business. Yeah. And yeah. it's something selfish that you're doing. But what it sounds like is that it actually turns around and becomes a less selfish activity because you're able to do the other things better, which are the things that other people are relying on you for. I think the selfish reference is only in the sense of carving the time out for yes, making yes. it a priority. Yep. But then what ends up happening is, you know, so my daughter and I just got back from the BNP Paribas Masters Tournament in uh, Palm Springs, California. This is a daddy-daughter, you know, ritual now. Oh, it's, okay. You know, and it's it's something that she, she picked up the sport because she saw this guy was, you know, crazy passionate about it. She picked it up completely self-directed, you know, wanted to go out, you know, with me. So the first time we went was when she was seven. She's 10 now. She plays tennis. She enjoys these trips. She goes out, we geek out on things. It, it just creates this unintended consequences, all great consequences, both in your personal and work life. One of the topics I wanted to also explore, you kind of alluded to in light of your tennis journey, mm -hmm. is you've been traveling for some of these competitions. I don't know whether you've been flying around or more in the driving distance, but if you're doing national competitions, I'm supposing you've been getting on airplanes and... Yeah, no, lot, lots of flying, yes. Yeah, and then probably for other reasons, but uh, now that kind of, you know, the travel or flying is back to normal, quote, or more normal, post-pandemic, mm -hmm. et cetera. So uh, I know you always travel quite a bit, uh, lots for work, etc. How has that changed or evolved or affected kind of your experience of everything? And uh, would, would you have any suggestions or recommendations, I guess, for some of the people who are more junior in the audience? You know, this is a habit I carry over from corporate travel. You know, I don't check anything in if I can help myself. You know, travel light. Obviously, you can't always do that. You know, carry on should be the way to go if you can do it, especially with the craze that is going on right now, post-pandemic return to travel. I feel like people have been really deprived from something that Americans have enjoyed doing. And so the, the return to travel, you know, is, is it's very aggressive. Flights are full. They're, you know, double booked. Uh, the other thing that, that that I've gotten really good about is I book my vacations at least six months in advance. Maybe that doesn't give you the flexibility in terms of like the, the discount rates and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's one way to save to save mind space and to kind of plan ahead. Because a lot of times if I am traveling with my kids, I want to make sure that the details are checked. You know, you're crossing the T's, dotting the I's, making sure that it is as stress-free as possible. And so uh, at least my flight tickets, you know, get ahead of the program, figure out if it's a personal trip, if it is, you know, with guys, if it is with, with your kids, book your travel four months ahead of time, just so you can get it out of the way. And it, it just simplifies it. For me, stress-free travel is critical. And I think that's kind of how, you know, I've been thinking about it. The I one see. recommendation I do have, just from a recent trip, so we were in the Vegas area for our annual um, Thanksgiving get together this last November. And typically we pick a destination that, you know, 25 some people can get together. This is extended family from across the United States. We fly into one place. But I typically take my kids a week before and we do something special in that geography. We stumble upon the helicopter flyover, fly through, land in the Grand Canyon, which is absolutely the right way to do the Grand Canyon. <laughs> because if you select the right trips, you know, you can actually do a really healthy dose of hiking on the ground uh, and then get back in the helicopter. Just incredible, right? It's such a different way to enjoy the landscape, to fly over the Hoover Dam. Sure. 
I mean, it's so um, big that, all that stuff. otherwise it's probably impossible. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you could do the same, you know, day-long, two-day-long trip as, as you would through other means, but you just get there faster and you spend a lot more time on the ground hiking, you know, doing stuff that, that really adds value to, to your personal experience. You know, that's, that's one tip that that's the only way we're going to do it in the future. I see. I see. Wow. Good to know. I know we were, when we got started, uh, before we, as we were planning this session, we were saying maybe about half an hour or so, but is there anything else, I guess, going on in life that's exciting or um, interesting? I know economically, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening with banks and otherwise, <laughs> and that's oh, yeah. probably another multi-hour topic that, yeah. that we could get into. But I've been telling friends and I've also maybe more so telling myself based on what what's happening for the most part most of us are better off leaving our money in the bank as opposed to taking it out and putting in our mattresses <laughs> just yet but i suppose some of us have different amounts of money and then many of us are interested with money that doesn't really belong to us but we're in charge of managing <laughs> it right <laughs> you know i'm of the opinion that now is when you start cherry picking any number of cnbc interviews will tell me that i'm an idiot and i'm okay with that um <laughs> yeah no, after setting out the market the last two years i think you know i'm slowly beginning to kind of tip my feet and I enjoy the high risk, high reward option space, but then you got to, you know, make sure that you're taking calculated risks. I spend a few minutes every day, you know, kind of playing bets on sector stocks that I really like. The, the one thing, you know, kind of back to the charter of this project, yes. uh, you know, I just wanted to share a couple of things that I think are relevant, even more relevant to today's context than say three, five years ago. Privacy has really dialed up and sensitivity to privacy, cybersecurity has become a huge concern for consumers. So as we think about B2C brands that are either recently, you know, started out or are just starting up, it used to be a lot easier to create a D2C vertical, uh, a D2C channel than it is today. So, you know, in a world where there is finite resources, I would say uh, one of the things that we have learned is to kind of leverage these megaphones that are available by megaphones. I'm talking about these big established marketplaces um, to kind of get the brand established before, you know, attempting to create a vertical because, you know, awareness is what drives adoption and then sales. And so I would say the playbook today is, you know, is start with platforms, start with e-commerce platforms, as opposed to going down the path of creating a DTC uh, presence that you got to own and, and maintain. And then the second thing I would just say, and we kind of talked about this very briefly, is, you know, the current, and it's not just the economic environment that is challenging right now. I think there is a lot of consumer awareness and consumer demands. We talked a little bit about, you know, allergy and the need for purity and so on and so forth. And this has created this whole full cycle of the government bodies. This is the FDA, the FTC, in terms of accountability, in terms of making sure that consumers on these e-commerce platforms are not getting hurt by their choices. And so the reason I bring this up is because it becomes really important as a brand on these platforms to be, you're splitting a time between both growth and defense and a lot more on defense, you know, recently in terms of making sure that you are FDA, FTC compliant in our niche, but, you know, in any niche, you got to be FTC compliant and so on and so forth. I think the key learning has been, it used to be that you could be 80% growth and 20% defense or sustain your business. I would say it's more of an even split, if not even tilted towards making sure that you have 
an excellent catalog, great customer experience, just a very truthful, transparent customer experience. And then the growth will come from a prioritization of where to focus. Because I'd imagine a lot of the target audience is a business that is structured quite like ours with few employees, not a ton of headcount. So we got to deploy those resources effectively. And I think that's one that uh, I just wanted to share as what has changed in the last three to five years. Yeah, I think the privacy and cybersecurity piece is very important. You know, I've been in different startups for more than two decades now. It's kind of interesting. I haven't done any food or uh, nutrition type of startups or products. So most of the work that I've been doing is in technology or um, technology services. But in the technology Mm -hmm. product space, for example, I was part of one startup right when the dot-com crash was happening uh, more than two decades Mm -hmm. ago, Mm -hmm. where we were providing a message broker uh, service. So basically a kind of a data transformation or data translation service in a hosted fashion, in a what now would be called SaaS or cloud fashion. We were actually going to these large enterprises and say, telling them that our value proposition is that we can be kind of a post office or a post stop for your data. So all the data you want to send to the outside world, we can take it from you and then we'll translate it to whatever schemas are needed and vice versa. Whenever those people needed to send you data, we would take their data and translate them into your schemas and send it back to you, right? Back then, there wasn't that much that those companies or those enterprise target accounts would ask us around cybersecurity. Of course they would, but it mm-hmm. was nothing like today. And at that time to kind of, you know, map your, what you mentioned about growth versus defense, the ratio was 80% on kind of the bells and whistles. That's what they cared about mm-hmm. I mean, in 10 or mm-hmm. 20%. They would say, oh, okay, do you have your infrastructure, you know, secure? Will you, how will you ensure our data is good, et cetera? And then how will you ensure that your service is available so that we don't suffer business harm, right? In case yeah. there's any outage or whatever. And we've been advising a few startups more recently and it's the shift clearly is there where the growth is no longer 80% or the bells and whistles is not just 80%. It's not 80% of the focus. It's probably 60 or 50%, maybe 60%. Mm. And the mm-hmm. other 20 to 40% is a lot more around privacy, secu- yeah, cybersecurity, business yeah. continuity, and so on, right? I'm not sure exactly the, what caused that, but mm. maybe because the bad actors have gotten hold of better technology, right? Yeah. yeah. But there's a lot of, you know, I heard a gentleman from FBI give a talk recently, and he was saying there are two kinds of companies out there, those that know that they've been hacked and those who don't, right? <laughs> so I think... Definitely, cybersecurity privacy is a big deal. It permeates all enterprises. It's not just for technology enterprises, obviously. Absolutely. You have that covered from an enterprise technology standpoint. I would say my perspective is in terms of consumer habits. This is consumers buying physical goods and kind of how it affects their choices in terms of where to create accounts, where to, you know, what is their digital footprint. I use highly encrypted password management softwares. They've been hacked twice in two years. You know, these guys are persistent. It's definitely a risk on phase right yeah, now. Yeah, makes with, sense. Uh, That's a good reminder. Yeah. Uh, thanks, yeah. Prasad, for your time. We'll ask you to come back at some point for the audience would love to get some feedback or suggestions and you know feel free to recommend this to others that might find this of value and we'll look forward to yeah. continued success i know in life in general but also startups are uh, every inch is a battle right every day is a battle <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, yes that's what we wake up for yeah exactly so best of luck and we'll be in touch thank you Arish. All right thank you so, bye. thank you